Hi everyone and welcome to Animal Welfare Conversations. Join us as we talk to people working towards a common goal to improve animal welfare. We'll chat to veterinary surgeons, veterinary nurses, animal owners, conservationists and others who have an important part to play in care and decision making about the lives of pets, domestic animals, farm animals, zoo animals or wildlife. We'll find out more about the great work that is already happening to make the lives of animals better. If you care about animals and want a better life for them, then please follow us and join the Animal Welfare Conversation. Hi everybody and welcome to the Animal Welfare Conversation podcast. This afternoon, I am delighted to be joined by Dr. Matt Morgan, who is a medic, um, but he is very interested in the world of animals and animal welfare and has recently written a book about One Medicine, which we're hopefully going to discuss and, and go into some detail as we as we chat. Could you perhaps start off by telling us a little bit about yourself and your career to date. Sure. I'm originally from South Wales, a small town just on the coast, a place called Neath. But I trained as a doctor in Cardiff and Bristol. And my day job, if you like, is an intensive care consultant working in Cardiff in a big, busy hospital. But my job by night or by weekend or by times I'm not in work, I guess I'd describe as public engagement. So I wrote a book in 2019 called Critical, all about the science and stories of people at the brink of life in the intensive care unit. And as you mentioned, uh, a book published in 2023 called One Medicine. The subtitle is How Understanding Animals Can Help Save Your Life. Marvellous. Now, you're a medic, so I, I completely understand the fascination for science and all things medical, but you're obviously enthusiastic and passionate about animals. So where does that interest come from? I guess it came really, as you mentioned, from a love of science, but putting science into perspective. And I think for me, that's kind of what medicine is you know lots of people like science but i want to apply that to to life and for me whether that life is a human or a non-human animal that's kind of doesn't matter you know it's still physiology it's still science it's still anatomy it's still the ethics and morals of that um i i guess you know i have only been a human doctor however but it was treating patients in the intensive care unit where we are really operating at the very limit of survival having to use crazy machines and weird science and that really got me thinking about are there non-human animals for whom that crazy science is just a normal day in their life so that that's a really interesting angle to take there Thinking about that, that, you know, you write a lot in the book about the animals and that this is the way they normally function and how can we apply that to human medicine. Um, 
what do you think is the best example you've come across of copying from nature then in medicine? Wow, that's a tricky one. I think, you know, half the problem is that in medicine, we don't look for inspiration in other non-human species. So a lot of the cases that I've described in the book have been only recognised really in retrospect. Uh, For example, I talk about the giraffe in the book, and that's alongside a story of a patient who is critically ill after a brain injury, who was sadly assaulted, and we were thinking about how do we manage this brain injury. And as doctors, we now think we are very clever. We know there's theories of how the pressure inside the brain can go up and down according to blood pressure. We use theories from Scottish physicians back in the 1800s, and and we apply those to people. And that's what we did to this patient, this patient called Ivan. But if you look at the giraffe, it's been doing the same things for millions of years to get blood to the end of that long neck, two meters, two meters high to its brain. It uses the same techniques as we now use in the intensive care unit. It pushes up its blood pressure to the highest of all land mammals. It stops the blood vessels in its neck, restricting blood flow. And we think we're clever for using these techniques in the last you know, 50 years, but actually we should have known about it long before because giraffes have been doing it for millions of years. So have you come across any examples where there's opportunity that's, that's not being used? Yeah, that's that's right. So one of my hopes from this book, One Medicine, is that it will allow people to open their eyes and open their brains to the possibility of inspiration from, from nature. Um, I actually, during... The book. I had a pause during the COVID times where intensive care was obviously very busy. I couldn't write. I wasn't in the right mental space to do it. I was very busy in, in work. And when things finally settled down to have a little bit of space, I travelled to a remote Scottish island just mm-hmm. south of Skye uh, called Elan Shona, which is where Peter Pan was written, actually. Um, and I went there on purpose for quite a strange reason. <laughs> Um, partially to get some writing done because it's completely off grid. So there was nothing other than me and a book to finish. But I went there on purpose to take all my clothes off, cover myself in honey and get bitten by midges. That's now, very brave. <laughs> yeah. Well, it seems, yeah, it seems very stupid. And of course it was stupid. But the weird thing was, I it didn't hurt at all at the time. You know, at that very time when the midges were biting me, it was excruciating afterwards when I had nearly a hundred midge bites and I was trying to soak myself in a very peaty bath uh, to <laughs> reduce the pain. But at the time, it didn't hurt at all. And uh-huh. so, what a great way to think about how do we move to painless injections? You know, wouldn't it be great if vaccinations or testing blood sugars for people with diabetes or or just taking blood didn't hurt. Mm-hmm. And that's what the midge has achieved. Uh, and it's achieved that through vibrating the needle at a particular frequency, which stops pain signals from getting through. It's achieved it by having an ultrasound tip on the end of its needle, if you like, so it hits the blood vessel first time. And it's achieved it by using a sequence of 
smaller than ever bigger needles to to take that blood so there are now research groups around the world looking into this and you know it would be amazing if we could get to a place of painless injections in human medicine absolutely and veterinary as well you know so many examples coming to mind of injecting particular breeds like greyhounds are very very sensitive to injections and and guinea pigs um and the scream that they let out you know like babies you know when you inject them and then you feel so bad and the owner thinks you're horrible um and yeah absolutely that that would be amazing I, I must admit, when I was reading the book I was quite um pleased to see the mention about the development of sphinges and injections um, and the connection to the Royal College of Physicians of Edinburgh, because that's where I now work. Ah. So I was delighted to see that get a mention in there. Yeah, it's the kind of things we take for granted. And yet, you know, it revolutionised medicine and science. And, you know, the very earliest actually come from arthropods and come from um uh, beast things and other inspiration in nature so i think it's only right to you know complete that circle and go back in fact scotland has been a huge uh, part of the development of my specialty intensive mm -hmm. care medicine it's also where ultrasound was first developed uh, for use in in medicine you know it was first used in the shipyards to detect flaws in the hulls of ships and now you know ultrasound in the intensive care unit and in medicine and in obstetric ultrasound, for example, is used everywhere. So, um, and again, the understanding of that really comes from animals. It was a crazy uh, religious person in, in Italy who lived in a cathedral who tried to work out how bats could navigate without flying into the walls of his cathedral. And mm -hmm. it was through understanding that that we eventually understood the concept of ultrasound and, and sonar so i mean that that you've just in that what what's that five minutes you've given us three amazing examples right across the spectrum um and that there are there are so many examples in the book that that you go through um any other of your favorite examples from the book about all of this yeah i guess you know i I do love the giraffe because it, it can teach us so much, not only about brain perfusion, but about how asthmatics uh, breathe and even about uh, the development of evolution through through natural selection. So the giraffe is probably a highlight of an animal, but I, I quite like the contrast between the huge and the tiny. Uh, mm -hmm. There's a case in there about the whale's heart. And, you know, this is an incredible structure. It's the size of a grand piano. And there was a cardiologist called Hans Wellen, who was obsessed with trying to understand a whale's ECG, a heart tracing of a whale. And now it's pretty tricky to do an ECG on a whale, uh, especially the time when he tried to do it was during mating season, which was a even more terrible time to try and do that's a bit dangerous <laughs> yes in fact he nearly died uh, because uh, these whales that were mating in threes actually uh, crashed into the ship and so it was nearly a fatality from trying to get an ecg in a whale but he did it and mm -hmm. it's opened the doors for us understanding the electricity in hearts amazingly well mm -hmm. and in fact just this week 
I met with a heart surgeon who implants devices into people with failing hearts. And the way these work, they call LVADs or left ventricular assist devices, they work the same way as a whale's heartbeat keeps blood flowing. You know, it, it beats only three times per minute. So how on earth can that allow blood to flow all the way to, you know, from, from its heart all the way to the tips of its ends? And the way it does that is similar to the way an LVAD works. It doesn't use pulsatile flow. So I love the whale. The whale is up there. And at the same time, uh, the tiniest creature in the book is probably the ant. Uh, I, I chatted to a, an ant researcher in, in Bristol uh, who really ants deal with pandemic outbreaks all the time. And it's no surprise they deal with it much better than humans do. Well, yeah, they do all the things that we learned too late in the pandemic they they wash their hands with carbonic acid to prevent contracting uh, these infections they change their roots around the colony to protect the vulnerable they close their schools they use uv light to sterilize the colony uh, they even use vaccination actually they rub small amounts of uh, infection on others to induce a degree of immunity so if our politicians had only looked beneath their feet at these tiniest creatures, then maybe the pandemic wouldn't have been so tough. And that that could take me on to a slightly more controversial question. Um, being a vet, I am biased in this. I will freely admit that. I read a book, um, I think it was called Spillover. Um, and it, you wrote it before the pandemic and all about, you know, where the next pandemic is going to come from. How do we tackle disease around the world? And the thing I took from that book was just how well vets and medics and other health scientists, epidemiologists, how they all work together around the world. And I've not really seen it to the same degree in the UK. I'm sure somebody will now write to me and tell me that I'm wrong. But in the UK, I've not seen examples of the vets being as involved with things like the COVID um, pandemic when that happened. Um, do you think there's scope for much more interdisciplinary work? And how, how can we get break down those barriers and get the vets and the medics and everybody to see that we want the same thing at the end of the day. You know, I think that the book is science and it's got some humour and it's got stories and so on. So it, it, it's kind of lighthearted in many ways, but there are some serious concepts in there, which I feel really strongly about. And that's, that's one of them. You know, frankly, it's, there's not just scope for this. It's, it's essential. It has to happen. And I think in this post-pandemic world, you know, people have realised more than ever how interconnected life and health really is, whether that's through food chains, whether it's through antibiotic resistance or the rise of zoonotic disease or climate change. You know, the, the, this isn't an optional extra. This is this has to happen. If if I'm perfectly honest, I think you know vets have always tried to do that and to reach out um i think it's probably something that human doctors and human scientists need to work a lot harder at you know we need to as you say do true interdisciplinary work in you know why is it 
that doctors and med and vets and veterinary nurses and and human nurses are not training together you know not necessarily at every time at every aspect but certainly in those early years where those concepts of uh, zoonotic issues and antibiotic resistance and physiology are being taught you know that should just be a default and there are some places doing that there's some places in cambridge there's some places in southampton for example and why as a human doctor do i swear an oath to just one species on the planet and veterinary doctors swear an oath to every other species on the planet you know that's that's a really odd way to set it up we should absolutely be doing this what are the practical ways well i think education is one of them so let's train together Let's have conferences together uh, rather than separate conferences according to species, uh, for example. And let's have academic departments together. Why is there a department of medicine and a separate department of, of veterinary sciences, for example? So that's a start. And I think coming through that route, it will, frankly, benefit uh, everybody. Yeah, absolutely. Um my own experience, I did spend, a, well, I've spent a large part of my life teaching vet nursing. Um, and at one point I was in an academic department teaching vet nursing and we were based in human nursing, as I used to call it. Everybody thought I was slightly strange using the term human nursing because they thought it was just nursing. But to me, there was that, that differentiation. And what we found was I learned lots about human nursing and that has helped me immensely um, going forward but there wasn't the same fascination from the human side of things about what we were doing in the veterinary world it, it was almost as if we were a novelty and one person actually said to me one day oh yes Mary we are going to teach you how to nurse properly yeah which didn't do a lot to, to win me over and make me feel part of the team. And what we also found, because the NHS is such a huge beast, it was very much focused on human healthcare, what was happening in the NHS, and then we slotted in wherever. So th there are a lot of challenges, but I absolutely agree. We should be working together much more, and it starts at that point of education. Um, I found a book, I, I love old books, old veterinary textbooks, but I found a book the other week and it's Zoology for Medical Students. Wow. And it's just lovely and it's going through, and mainly parasites, you know, but it's just yep. going through all the different animals and how they impact on human health. And it, it must be from the 1940s, yes. you know. So it has been around, but we need to acknowledge it more. So how would you like things to change and, and how could we change things going forward? Yeah, so I think probably those three practical steps, if there's a new medical school opening or if there are existing medical schools, then I want human and non-human medicine, so to speak, and physiology to merge, especially in those early years. And that will be of benefit to all. Of course, you still need to diverge at different points, as, as you do in, in learning veterinary science, in game animals versus domesticated, for example. So I think that's one real practical point. 
Uh, and then I want those academic departments to merge, you know, and have rather than every now and then have a cross-discipline day, you know, they should be working alongside each other. And, you know, in a broader sense, I'd even like that oath that we talk about at graduation to be one. You know, the book's called One Medicine. It's called One Medicine for a reason. You can't draw a dividing line between, you know, the management of TB or antibiotic resistance or, or other things in this one species versus all the other species. So, you know, I, I want that one medicine to be a practical uh, one medicine uh, rather than just a theoretical one. Yeah, absolutely. That that would be amazing to do that. And and I know that, like you say, that there are some universities starting to do this. So we live in hope that, that we can get there. Now, you've mentioned the term one medicine. And you speak to different people, there are different definitions for this term. Um, I think we've, we've seen a little bit of what you think that should be and what that is. Can, can you tell me a little bit more about what you would define one medicine as? Yeah, I guess I, for my purposes and for the purposes of the book, it's pretty tight. Uh, and it's about that understanding, learning and thriving of health in all species, uh, rather than being speciesist about it. So, you know, when we learn the benefits of drug X, Operation X, Operation Y, I want them to be shared across species rather than restricted to one or the other. And what's important to me is that that should have reciprocal benefit. You know, it shouldn't be a one directional benefit. It shouldn't be humans uh, constantly benefiting from the sacrifice and the exploitation of non-human species. Uh, it should be a shared appreciation and a shared benefit. And how can that come about? Well, you know, there's already pharmaceutical companies that provide drugs to developing world nations for a, a much smaller cost, for example. For me, it would make sense that many of those animals who have been involved in bringing new drugs to market they too should benefit from that. Uh, and should there be differential terms there, for example? It's the same for medical equipment and prostheses. Um, so that that's really where one medicine is for me, which is the improvement of medicine for the benefit of all species shared amongst all species. Absolutely. I, I, I just think that's amazing. That it, It's so lovely to hear it being discussed like that. So you've written the book, you're doing lots of public awareness and telling people about this. Are there any particular people that we you think are the key players in this? That in order to move this forward and to improve animal welfare and human health, to change things going forward and improve things for everybody? Yeah, wow, good, great question. I, I guess I'd probably divide them into three main groups, and that is those involved in education. So particularly thinking about the deans of medical schools, the government ministers organising medical school places and so on. So, you know, I want a policy that the default is training human and non-human specialists together, certainly in those early years. So, you know, th th that's one big call out uh, there, really. I guess the second big call out, as I've mentioned, are people involved in producing medical equipment, medical drugs, uh, prostheses and so on. You know, I really want differential 
access uh, according to that. So, you know, let's let's spread the benefit of medical research uh, for all. And then I think, you know, more broadly, my, my colleagues, you know, whether you're a, a spinal surgeon, a GP, uh, a psychiatrist, open your mind to what's already out there in non-human species, you know, through reading different books, different literature, go into different conferences, not only human conferences, um, you know, you can start with something small uh, and and evolve from there. So, yeah, I'd call out to the leaders of education, uh, the leaders in, in research and uh, my colleagues. That's really interesting that that you say that. We um I was chatting to Sean Wensley, ah. who's who's a vet, um, and he also has a, a call to action for the individual person. That yes, if we all work together on things, we can make a difference. Um and it's really interesting to see that parallel approach there, um, which at the end of the day is about animal welfare as well as human health and welfare as well. Um, yeah. I was going to ask you, um, you said in the book that our relationship with animals seems broken. And I was interested in that and wanted to ask you a little bit more about what you meant by that. I think what I mean is that the most common way for people to interact with animals nowadays is probably as a filling of their sandwich. And that shouldn't be the most common way we interact with animals. And it it kind of wasn't in the past. You know, I, as part of writing this book, I'd hoped to go to the Galapagos Islands. I had a trip booked. I mean, it was all ready to go. I'm pretty scared, actually, of open water. So it was going to be me conquering a fear as well as treading in Darwin's footsteps. It was going to be a grand opening to the book. And then, of course, COVID got in the way of that. So the trip was cancelled multiple times. But instead, I went closer to home. I went to the South Wales Valleys. There's a cave there. I went with an archaeologist called George Nash, and he showed me one of Britain's oldest cave art uh, caves. And it was an image scratched into the rock of a giant deer. And this was about 20,000, 40,000 years ago. You know, that relationship with animals where we understood them we knew their lives, we knew their anatomy, uh, we knew how to interact with them. That that has shifted so much. It used to be there. It was there 20,000 years ago. And now we have this bizarre factory farming, filling of a sandwich relationship only with animals. And I, I think that needs to go back to that understanding. Um, and that will, I hope, be for for the benefit of all. There's so many things coming into my head about the different ways that, and I hate the term, the way that we use animals, but I can't think of a better word for it, whether it's farming, it's sport, it's pets, domestic animals. Um, I have my my little collie is sitting at my my feet here and she's my companion, um, one of a few. Um, and... It's very difficult, isn't it? Because some people would say, well, I'm keeping this dog in captivity and she's here. But then I can argue, well, she's been bred over hundreds of years to be a companion and I'm providing her with her bed and board effectively. Um, 
But yeah, what what is the right answer then? Should we even be keeping animals or what what would you like to see happening going forward? Yeah, and you know, like all difficult questions, there's there's not an easy answer. There are easy examples. And I think what we need to move away from is purely exploitative use of animals, be that in research, in in feeding and eating meat in in other relationships you know there are tough gray zones and i i don't know the answer i've got an a, an amazing member of the family called chester who's also uh, here sleeping at my feet and i don't feel that that's an exploitative relationship i feel that's a uh, that's i think you said companion relationship and i think that's true you know we're, we're also using companion animals in the intensive care unit at the minute there's a description of of a, a companion a dog who comes to our intensive care unit who helped a stroke patient move their arm for the first time and i can't embody their existence but they seem to enjoy being there and the interaction and, and get a lot out of that too so i think there are some clear examples where those relationships are exploitative and we should absolutely move away from those minimize those there's a tricky gray zone area and then there's some which which i think are are hugely healthy and should be encouraged yeah absolutely and i think you might have answered my next question already um but we we have this running question through every podcast so um podcast is called Animal Welfare Conversations. We are discussing a whole variety of different subjects that relate to animal welfare. But within that, we ask every guest, um, what does animal welfare mean to you? So what, what does it mean to you, Matt? I think it means to me encouraging reciprocal relationships and removing exploitative relationships. Everybody has given me a different answer to this question. It is so fascinating. That's that's a lovely angle to take to that. But yeah, I like that. The, the fact that it's reciprocal, mm. that there is some benefit to all of us. Um, I, I think that's a lovely way, way to look at it. Can I just ask you, um, in the book, you look at a couple of specific areas um, looking at behaviour, so animal behaviour and human behaviour, and also you focus on on pain um, within people and also within animals. And obviously behaviour and the pain side of things are central to animal welfare. Um, what, what can we do going forward to improve these aspects of welfare for humans and animals? I think probably the first thing is, is recognise that those fundamentals are there, like pain and sentience. Um, I'm I'm a big fan of Peter Singer's work, Animal Liberation in the 70s, and in fact, it's just been republished, coming out in, in this June. And I think, you know, he really made that point, examining older philosophies, saying, you know, the importance is can they suffer, uh, and knowing that sentience is there. You know, bizarrely, we've been through this transition even with children. You know, in paediatrics many, many years ago, the thought is that they couldn't feel pain at certain points and suffer so yeah i think recognizing that that experience is is present is is probably the biggest thing uh, and there's some examples in the book of that as you mentioned there's work from an anthropologist robin dunbar that i was lucky enough to interview 
He's the chap who came up with the concept of Dunbar's number, a number of relationships that we can maintain as humans, which is around 150. But he also did a lot of work in grooming in primates, showing that grooming was really an extension of maintaining those bigger circles of relationships. And that's translated into the care of premature newborn babies. You know, we now know there are receptors in human skin which responds to light touch at you know one and a half centimeters per second, which is stroking, which is grooming. And that releases powerful endogenous opiates and endorphins, which can improve the survival of newborn babies in neonatal intensive care units. Uh, those same receptors are in the middle ear, which responds to harmonic humming and frequencies, the same frequencies as chants in many religions and even nursery rhymes. So, yeah, there's so much to be learnt about those those relatively subjective feelings, if you like, of pain and suffering in, in different creatures. Yeah, and it, it is difficult to not anthropomorphize at that point. And I have to admit, I hate that term because it puts people in the middle of it as if we are the ones that have all of this awareness and thought processes and emotions. Um, and for me, it's like, well, of course an animal feels pain or misses its companions or or, or whatever. All those sorts yeah. of things are the same. But I, I saw a survey the other week and it was looking at sentience. Hmm. Um, and I can't remember the percentages, but not everybody believed that chickens or even dogs were sentient. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. that really shocked me and just made me wonder about our society and what are we doing wrong in society or what are we not doing um, that people can have those beliefs that mm-hmm. the animals are not sentient. I guess, you know, it is hard because we, you know, humans are very specious and that is a problem. You know, there was the famous discussion by Nagel back in the 70s. What is it like to be a bat? You know, trying to imagine life as a bat is incredibly difficult. And yet, if you think about it for too long, you know, losing the ability to create sonar and navigate your way must be incredibly distressing as a bat. But it is hard for humans to to move into that world. And yet, you know, that that must be incredibly terrible and bad. You know, if anyone's had vertigo, that by itself is is an awful experience. Imagine you were a bat without the ability to to use sonar, which as humans we can never imagine what that must be like. So I, I think I, I'm a big fan of we are like Peter Singer and, and others have described, we are enlarging our moral circle. You know, it started in the past with not all humans deserved liberty and respect and could feel pain. And we expanded that moral circle to include children and other races and everything else. And now we are enlarging that circle, perhaps to humans who live far away from us uh, and in other places. And we need to expand that circle outside of humans to other species too. But that's, you know, it's hard. It is hard. I'm not saying it's an easy thing to do, but 
as soon as you start to think about it logically, look at the history of civilization, look at those interrelationships between species, then um, then it's the obvious right thing to do. It is, isn't it? And um, I won't mention some past colleagues from, from way back in the day um, who were non-veterinary, who it wasn't a case of they weren't interested in what the veterinary world did and how we treated animals. It was just that they it never seemed to occur to them to ask about it. They were so focused on their own area um, within human medicine that it just they didn't seem to have that open mind. And and that's one of the things that I, I would hope. I, I, your book is fantastic, and I absolutely love it. Um, and I'm going to encourage everybody I know to go and read it because it is that opening your mind and just looking at everything that's out there and like all the examples you've given and see well what else could we do going forward and how could we improve things and I suppose that that takes me to to my second last question um if you ever write a follow-up to this book what would you like to include? What would you like to see happen over the next five or 10 years going forward? Yeah, I think I'd probably like to see the book not even be published because it's so obvious. You know, the things I've said in this book, which are consider non-human species, work together as doctors and vets or veterinary nurses and human nurses, think about diet, climate change, think about factory farming. I'd love to get to a point in five years where a publisher would say, no, we're not publishing this because everybody knows that. Uh, that, for me, uh, would be a win. Just like the best way to survive intensive care is never come to intensive care in the first place. So, yeah, that's probably what I'd say. I'd like to be unemployed in this sector uh, because the world and life has moved on. That's a really interesting approach to it, that, that we just don't need to have this discussion. Um, that that would be amazing. And then I'm sure you would find some other topics to write about. What what other areas would you be interested in? Yeah, well, you've mentioned uncertainty, and I'm pretty fascinated by that. In fact, I wrote an article for uh, the British Medical Journal, which is a pretty popular article called Those Three Little Words, uh, which is the three words we don't use enough in medicine uh, which is i don't know uh, and there's there's power in uncertainty so i'm pretty fascinated about uncertainty in in science uh, so to speak and, and certainly in medicine too um, i am working on a, a third book at the minute which is hopefully going to be about how uh, people who have survived extraordinary things even survived death through cardiac arrest can teach us something about life uh, so that's something I'm working on at the minute. And there are lots of life advice books out there been written over generations, but they've all been written by people who've only known life and, and not death. So that's a project that I'm um, I'm engulfed in at the minute. And I'm sure from the veterinary perspective, there's lots that we can learn from that to apply to animals as well. So it, it goes both ways, doesn't it? Yeah, I hope so. And and certainly I'm trying more and more to make my writing not only applicable to the general public rather than just professions, but also equally applicable uh, across the wealth of of the health and, and life of species, really. Yeah, 
Yeah, no, it's fascinating. I just, I have to finish with a couple of quotes um, from the book, which I absolutely love. Um, unsurprisingly, being a vet, they are, they are very pro-vet quotes. Um, and so the first one was, now I know I work only with animals. And that, that just summed it up to me. There is no division between people and animals. And then the last quote, which I really am going to have this on a poster. Um, if you are a doctor, learn from vets. I'm completely biased, I have to admit, <laughs> but I, I just love that. Like, how, how have you got to that conclusion that um, it would be helpful, obviously, for us all to work together, but um, for a doctor to learn from a vet? Yeah, I think I describe in the book, the truth is how this kind of journey started. I was looking after a patient who choked on a biscuit that had a cardiac arrest. And as I was looking after them in the intensive care unit, a flock of birds flew past the window. It's on the third floor of the intensive care unit I work in. And that morning, I'd cycled to work. It was a rare, hot summer's day in Wales, which doesn't happen very often. And I'd had a load of flies on my face before I'd showered um, and come into the intensive care unit. And I kind of thought, why don't those birds choke? You know, not on biscuits, but on flies. You know, there's flies all over my face. They fly in past really quickly. So that night, rather than revise for my intensive care exams, I actually ordered a book, which is still behind me on the shelf, which is Smith Nielsen's Animal Physiology, Comparative Physiology book. And I wanted to find out why don't birds choke? Um, that's how I entered this. And the truth is I, I completely consumed that book and found so many fascinating adaptions that animals make. Um, so that was my entry into it. And then, of course, the natural conclusion is, well, the people who deal with these crazy adaptions every day are, are vets. Um, and so I, I spent some time in veterinary clinics trying to learn from them. Um, and it's interesting what you say about quotes I, I've I've been looking lately. The book's been out for uh, about uh, just over six months. In, in fact, we've got a, a UK book launch tomorrow uh, in in Penarth, near where I live, because I was in overseas in Australia when the book was published. But I've been looking at the most highlighted parts of the book on Kindle, which is what you can what you can do. And there's two quotes, <laughs> funny enough, which are highlighted the most. And maybe I'll just share these these two yeah. with you. Um, one of them contains a swear word, so I'm um, <laughs> sorry this may need to be bleeped out. Um, and after all, the, <laughs> after all the research and science I did, it, it made me laugh that this is the quote that people seem to like the most, which doesn't contain very much science. Uh, and the quote is, although poetic in many ways, we now know the first part of the human embryo to develop in the womb is the end or the arsehole. Basically, you were once just an arsehole. Some people never change. So after all of my hard work, it was a uh, it was a cheap joke which has been highlighted the most. But the second most highlighted, and I think for me, this probably underlines the whole concept of the book, and it's from Winnie the Pooh, which is lots of people talk to animals, but not many listen. Though that's the problem. That's lovely. That that is just perfect what we can learn and what we're missing is the worrying fact, isn't it? There could be so many answers out there and we just haven't seen them. I, like, I can see why that's been highlighted. 
so much and the, and the wisdom of Winnie the Pooh of course yes of course <laughs> very wise beer that that's fantastic Matt and, and thank you so much for spending time chatting to us this afternoon um I think you've covered so many different points which on the surface you might say well that's no animal welfare or how is that linked to animal welfare but it is because if it's all about the health of the animal the behavior of the animal as understanding animals better then it can only improve the welfare of those animals um and your passion for the animal world comes through um completely I, I don't know if you have anything just to to end with any final points that we haven't covered no i just want to say mary thank you to you for reaching out to one of us weird human doctors it's been a privilege to tiptoe and enter into your world uh, thank you to the vets and veterinary nurses who've, who've been in touch about the book I'm, I'm i'm delighted to hear from them and yeah i guess just a, a call for help to say I, i'd love listeners to tell their friends and family about this concept about the book if people enjoy it um, I'd, I'd love a review on places where you normally put reviews uh, of the audiobook or, or the physical book and just a thank you really to the community for welcoming in, uh, me into uh, into your world you're welcome thank you so much matt and we will put all the information in the show notes and link through to all your websites and your information so we can continue this conversation because it's so important we have to take this conversation forward and um, so thanks again thank you thank you to matt for sparing the time to talk to us it was really interesting to find out more about the similarities between veterinary and human medicine and how that can improve the lives of animals. You can find out more about Matt's work in the show notes. And if you want to be the first to find out about animal welfare conversations, please go to the podcast website and subscribe to our newsletter. Remember to follow us as well in order to listen to the next episode as soon as it's released. And finally, thanks again to Gerlig and Fraser for supporting the creation of this podcast. We look forward to you joining the next Animal Welfare Conversation.